love how honest the kids can be sometimes, right? Like right after we got done singing that song, the Lord is my light, my light and salvation, one of the kids just went, eh. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like there's a sense in which we're all feeling a little bit like that this morning. There's a change in weather. Maybe we didn't sleep well. Half of us are recovering from sickness. So I just want us to stand up for a second. <laughs> And give the person next to you two high fives like this, like you've done. Right? All right, okay. All right. Give somebody a little circular rub on the back like this. All right. Give somebody an elbow bump if you're sick. Boom. All right, fist bump. You can even do the double fist bump. All right. Let's have a seat. <laughs> Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, you know our frame, you know our weaknesses, you know our finitude, you know everything about us. We pray, Lord, though, that you would wake up all our senses to your word. By the power of your Holy Spirit, you would sensitize us to heaven in this place. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Amen. 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 Well, we've been going through this sermon series on the first few chapters of Genesis, last time John preached on the sort of the broader scope of the account of creation in Genesis 1, the seven days of creation. And today we're going to sort of turn up the microscope and zoom in on just one day, the sixth day. And in fact, we're, we're going to zoom in on just the second half of the sixth day. Genesis 1, 26 through 31 where God creates humanity in his own image. I think it's difficult, maybe not impossible, but difficult to think of a more consequential truth in the entire Bible than the fact that all human beings, male and female, black and white, young and old, rich and poor, whether Irish <coughs> Irish, Chilean, <laughs> Russian, Sudanese, Mexican, all human beings bear what theologians call the Imago Dei, the image of God. Friends, are you awake to the dignity of this truth as we're gathered here this morning? That no matter who you are, no matter how you feel about yourself today, you are created in the image of God, Claire. You are created in the image of God, Scott. John, you're created in the image of God. You're created in the image of God, Jonathan. Lots of Johns here. <laughs> in the image of God, Cecilia. You're created in the image of God. Not only you're created in the image of God, and in His likeness. Warren, my brother, you are created with special dignity. You are created in the image and likeness of the almighty eternal creator. Now when I say that, we immediately know, well, if there's a kind of similarity, there's got to be some kind of dissimilarity too, right? Because we're not eternal, we're finite. We aren't holy like God is, although he sets us apart, he desires for us to be holy. We don't have the perfection of God. He's not on this side of the fall. There are many other ways in which we're dissimilar to God. 
Brothers and sisters, every one of you, every one of you sitting here this morning, yes, you, even you, yes, you, even you, the Bible is talking to you. God is talking to you. You're created in the image of God. Now, what does it mean to bear this image? A mother cradles her newborn daughter and whispers, You look just like your daddy. We pick up a copper penny and we immediately recognize the profile of Abraham Lincoln. We glance at the familiar apple with one bite missing out of it on the back of somebody's computer and we immediately know that that's a MacBook. All of these are examples of a kind of image bearing, aren't they? But could bearing the image and likeness of God also refer to something perhaps a bit more subtle? Dr. Paul Brand was a medical missionary, a top-notch surgeon from England who moved to India to open up a hospital in the mid-1900s. And his goal was not only to provide emergency medical services, but also to train up a legion of indigenous surgeons from among the local Indian people. One day, Dr. Brand and some of his students were observing one of the Indian medical interns with a patient. And this very capable intern crouched and placed a comforting hand on the patient. And Brand watched as the intern's facial muscles contracted in an expression combining sympathy and inquisitiveness and a disarming warmth as he looked straight into the patient's face and asked him questions. And suddenly, without warning, Dr. Brand gasped, causing everyone in the room to turn and look at him. And he looked like he had seen a ghost. And uh, realizing he owed the room an explanation for his outburst, Brand told everyone, that is the exact facial expression of my old chief, the one who trained me in London. But how can that be when you've never been to London and he's never been to India? At first, the students sort of stared at Dr. Brand in confused silence, and finally two or three of them grinned. We don't know your professor, they said, but Dr. Brand, that was your expression he was wearing. Later on, Brand put the pieces together. He thought about his old English professor who had died, who had impacted him so deeply, and he thought about these Indian medical interns. And even though they bore very little physical resemblance, these Indian students were now conveying, in some sense, the likeness of his old chief. Brand thought he had been teaching them diagnostic procedures and surgical techniques. He hadn't realized that he was also passing on certain imprinted instincts, body language, facial expressions, even a very particular way of smiling at the patients. Somehow, Brand had learned these things from his professor and unconsciously passed them on to his students 9,000 miles away, imaging his own teacher in a kind of unbroken human chain, even without realizing that this was taking place. Now, the example of Dr. Brand's students, as well as the newborn baby and the coin and the logo, help us to begin to understand what Genesis means when it speaks about God creating us in his own image. 
But to get a more precise meaning, we'll have to turn to God's Word. So will you open again with me to page 1 of your Bible, to Genesis 1, 26 through 31. And verse 26 begins, Then God said, Let us make man, or if you look at the foot, footnote, human beings in our image, after our likeness. And notice these two words, these two synonyms, that are used to describe the core idea of our special relatedness to our Creator. The first word is image in Hebrew, selen. This word, which is repeated twice more in verse 27, just to let you know it's important, is actually used throughout the Old Testament to describe the statues and shapes of pagan idols. So it's curious, isn't it, isn't it that, that God would use this to describe our relatedness to Him? In the, Greeks, in the Greek Septuagint, the word is translated as icon, which is a more familiar word to us. And it's the same word we find Jesus using in our gospel reading today from Matthew 22, verse 20. He holds up the Roman coin and asks, whose likeness, whose icon and inscription is this? Caesar's, they answer. And he says to them, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God, the things that are God. And just as Sarah's saying, what, what is Jesus implying here? Who is it that bears the likeness of God? Who is his earthly icon? Of course, we are human beings. Therefore, in a subtle way, Jesus is telling the Pharisees that we owe God everything. Everything we are. The second term used in verse 26 is likeness, in Hebrew, demut. It's a more abstract term. It's used in Hebrew to describe a kind of similarity that might exist between two things. So the same word is used again when describing Adam's descendants in Genesis 5. And it's used again in, uh, in the story of Noah in Genesis 9. And, and this actually affirms that human beings continue to bear the image of God, even after the fall. It's very important. Sometimes people wonder about that. As E.H. Merrill puts it, the image may be blurred, but it's not obliterated. After the fall, it may be blurred, but it's not obliterated. So to be created in God's image is to be, in some sense, the earthly icon of our heavenly creator, and to bear a kind of similarity, a likeness. Now, throughout history, some have erroneously conceived of the divine image in sort of a very physical, almost a biological way, right? The most famous example of this is probably Michelangelo's painting on the Sistine Chapel, where God is portrayed as this large, bearded man who's super muscular, who's reaching out to Adam, extending a hand to Adam. And Adam, actually, in his face, if you look at it, bears a very similar familial-type likeness to God. Now, this painting may be a great masterpiece, and Michelangelo's own theology might not have been as literal as his painting. I don't know. But either way, this way of conceiving of our image and likeness to God misses the mark from a biblical perspective. Throughout the Bible, we learn that God is emphatically not a man. As Jesus says in John chapter 4, God is spirit. 
a non-physical being. Therefore, the Imago Dei must not be understood in physical terms. But if bearing the divine image and likeness is not a physical reality, what is it? And what can learning about the Imago Dei teach us about our identity as human beings? I think this question should be fascinating for us because we're living in a time where we're obsessed with the idea of identity. There's widespread interest as well as widespread confusion on the matter. And so let's turn to God's word and see if we can find some clarity. I think there are three crucial things God's word, God's word has to teach us about our identities in the image of God. First, it teaches us that we are distinct. Second, that we are granted dominion. And third, that we are relational. So first, the Imago Dei teaches that we are distinct from the rest of creation. The creation of mankind in verses 26 through 31 is actually set off clearly from everything that precedes it during the first six days of creation. All the other creatures are compared with other creatures according to their kind, a phrase that's used first in verse 11 regarding plants, and it's repeated no less than nine times in the verses that follow regarding various species of vegetation, fish, birds, and land animals. But when we arrive at the creation of mankind in verse 26, this repeated refrain ceases and actually altogether disappears as if to signify that there's nothing quite like us on earth. In fact, according to the text, the nearest relation is to God himself. That's why God's other repeat, repeated refrain in chapter 1, let there be, let there be, and let, and let, is replaced in verse 26 by an altogether unique phrase, let us make. You see that? So humankind, it's communicated again and again, is distinct, set apart in a way, from the rest of creation and bearing the image of God has something to do with the qualities that make us different from the rest of creation. So what are those distinctly human qualities that reflect the divine nature? Well, biblical interpreters down through the ages have tended to interpret that according to the biases of their times. So during the Enlightenment, for example, uh, they thought of the image of God of being the human capacity for reason, that that's how we're connected to God, right? Or um, during the Victorian age, they, they said it's the ability to make moral judgments that is, is, is kind of related to this idea of likeness with God. Or the pietists said it's our ability to have spirituality, to have a spiritual connection with God, right? That that's what makes us uniquely human. In the Renaissance, it was tied to artistic creativity. And in our own psychoanalytical age, it's often been tied to self-consciousness or self-reflection on one's own existence. So what does the Imago Dei refer to? What is the distinct quality? Reason, spirituality, morality, creativity, self-consciousness. I'm not sure we actually have to choose. <laughs> While it may be unfair to impute all these ideas back to the few brief sentences we have here in Genesis, I also think it's true to say that all of these attributes are indeed found in both God and humankind in a unique sort of way. 
So it's fair to kind of have a hypothesis or like, hey, this thing that seems really distinct about both us and our creator and is different from everything else, maybe that has something to do with it. Maybe it all has something to do with it. Isn't that the point of Genesis 1, to highlight the distinctiveness of man and to ground it with special reference to God? I think it's without a doubt that Genesis 1 portrays human beings as the crown of creation. That's a special dignity, guys. And while it's important for us as stewards of the earth to hear God's affirmation that the land is good, that the seas are good, that the trees and animals are good, it's only after the creation of mankind that God can say in verse 31 that he saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. I mentioned a few weeks ago that Genesis offers a geocentric and earth-centered account of creation and some reasons why that's why that's very reasonable for it to do so. But it's also true to say that it's an anthropocentric or man-centered account of creation, that we are given special attention in this account. And in this sense, the Hebrew story is quite unlike any other creation account in the ancient Near East, where mankind is created as an afterthought or as the result of some kind of accident or immediately thought of as some kind of villain that's trying to get God. And Genesis alone is man endowed with heavenly dignity. And this is a wonder worthy of our reflection. This is exactly what the psalmist does in Psalm 8. And he says, When I look at your heaven, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is man? That you're mindful of him. The son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And here, you'll notice that Psalm 8 is actually following, following the creation account in Genesis 1 very closely. And that brings us to our second point about what we learn in this text, that the Imago Dei is somehow related to dominion. Just as medieval kings would post statues of themselves, sort of at the borders of their empire, to let you know that even though their throne is in another part of the realm, their dominion extends to this city. <laughs> their dominion extends to this border. In a similar way, God created us to be earthly icons that represent his heavenly authority. Now, the idea of connecting the divine image we bear to the role of delegated dominion might be new to some of you, some of you but the two ideas are so closely linked in Genesis 1 that they're a part of the same train of thought. One scholar goes so far as to call our dominion a textual elaboration of what is meant by the image of God. Verse 26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and, same train of thought, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, etc. So the divine image is bestowed upon us, and it's actually bestowed for this function. We see the same connection being made again in verses 27 and 28, where an affirmation of the Imago Dei is once again followed by an affirmation that God has granted us dominion over the earth. So there's no way around it. We are God's viceroys. 
God's royal stewards over creation. And there's a great nobility to this truth. But I can hear some of you already thinking, yeah, but there's also a great peril. Because, as we'll see, we can misuse our dominion, spurning the wisdom and laws of our Creator, and leaving the natural earth decimated in the wake of sinful human activity. We can use our power to mistreat animals. Did you know that in the Ten Commandments, even the ox and the donkey are commanded to practice the Sabbath? And there's many other such animal-conscious laws in the Old Testament. God cares how we treat these creatures that are under our care. But worst of all, strong people can lord over weak people and perpetuate systems of human misery and exploitation. And it is because of such things that the wrath of God is coming on the earth. Now some might ask, well then why did God give such responsibility to human beings? In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes, when we have understood free will, we shall see how silly it is to ask, as somebody once asked me, why did God make a creature of such rotten stuff that it went wrong? He says, the better stuff a creature is made of, the cleverer and stronger and freer it is, then the better it will be if things go right, but the worse it will be if things go wrong. He goes on to say, a cow cannot be very good or very bad. A dog can be both better and worse. A child better and worse still. An ordinary man still more so. A man of genius still more so. And a superhuman spirit best or worst of all. So human beings are created in God's image and special relationship with them and closely linked with this is the special stewardship we receive to exercise dominion over the earth, but we must exercise it faithfully as God would have us do. Alright, we've talked about the image of God making us distinct from the rest of creation, about it granting us dominion over creation, and the final clue about the Imago Dei is that in this passage has to do with our relationality, our unique ability and need to form deep relationships. As human beings, we long for friends. We long for romantic love. We long for society, even. In fact, the first time in Genesis where God says, it is not good, is when he sees the man alone in Genesis 2. We get this great sequence of it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. It's not good for man to be alone. That's not a good thing. Now this attribute of our humanity is rooted in the triune nature of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A reality that if you remember, we saw on display in the very first verses of Genesis 1. And we also see hints of this doctrine in verse 26, where God begins sort of mysteriously speaking in the plural. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Now this fact has puzzled Bible interpreters from the earliest days. Some consider it an announcement by God to his heavenly court, such as the angels. And this may be true, but we know in light of the fullness of biblical revelation, that any reference to the heavenly court must include God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. 
And it's through the doctrine of the Trinity that we begin to understand the eternal relationality of God. How is it that the New Testament can affirm that God is love, that love is a fundamental attribute, perhaps the fundamental attribute of God's nature? This could not be so if God were not three in one, for love must have an object. But we know that from all eternity, the Father has loved the Son. As it says in Isaiah 42, Behold, my beloved, in whom my soul delights. Likewise, from all eternity, the Son has loved the Father. John 14, 31, I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. And from all eternity, the Holy Spirit has been the agent by which their love has been communicated one to another. Romans 5, 5. And it's because of God's inherent relationality that he's also made us relational. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. So I want us to notice that our biological gender is a part of God's original design. That both maleness and femaleness are said to equally reflect the image of God. There's no hint of superiority or inferiority. And so there's, there's something about femininity that in a special way reflects the nature of God. Likewise, there's something about masculinity that in a special way reflects the nature of God. And in creating us male and female, notice God created us with a sense of differentiation, but also physical complementarity, not just so that we would have different plumbing, as I've heard some modern people so crassly say, but for the purpose of a sacred relational union. In verse 28, God blesses this union of man and woman. He blesses our sexuality as a holy and sacred gift. It says, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Now notice that the first commandment ever issued from God in the Bible is for human beings to procreate sexually. That God's first commandment in the, in the Bible is for men and women to marry and have sex. Like, this, I, I, like there's a prudish side of me that feels even embarrassed to say that line in front of you. <laughs> to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the scriptures consistently teach that there's something special, something mystical about this union. All animals can reproduce, but only through the union of man and woman is a living soul produced. Perhaps some of you have been blessed to witness the birth of a child firsthand, maybe even your own child. And I feel like the most common description of that, when somebody witnesses that for the first time or the second time or the eighth time, is it was miraculous. There was something miraculous that happened. We were partakers of a miraculous reality. One Old Testament scholar put it this way. He said, for believers, childbirth is an act of worship, a sharing in the work of God who created life. And yet oftentimes, I think there's a pressure on modern people to think of procreation as a curse rather than a blessing. Don't buy into the lie, brothers and sisters. 
Now, God's plan for human relationships doesn't stop with families, because if families make friends and clusters of families turn into towns and towns into cities, then human society is actually a part of God's original plan. In fact, Genesis 1.28 is sometimes referred to as the cultural mandate, the call for human beings to cultivate the natural resources of the earth in creative and responsible ways, resulting in useful things like canals and canoes, and in beautiful things like gardens and symphonies, and this beautiful thing that John spent a year making and just put in my window in my office, and I'm like, whoa, who made that? That's amazing. Thank you so much. <laughs> That's John following the cultural mandate. Now, sometimes human culture has been misunderstood as a bad or unbiblical thing, as if everything would be better if complex society didn't exist, if we all lived in our own huts, separated by at least a dozen miles. <laughs> but we only think this way because of the effect of the fall on human society. Consider, for example, that the story of the Bible begins with the garden paradise, but in the end, when sin is dealt with, we're not brought back to that same simple garden. Now the garden is there in the book of Revelation, but it's interwoven in this really interesting way into the city of God. So there's a river running through. The trees from the garden are there. But it's all weaved in to this beautiful image of the city of God. That's where God was always leading this creation. And whatever we've done with our sin, by his grace, he'll get us there. Now let me summarize as I begin to draw to a close. We began with the affirmation in Genesis 1.26 that we are all created in the image of God, Selem, and after his likeness, Demut. And we asked what it meant to be image bearers, to be divine image bearers. This is not a physical, biological thing. In Genesis 1, this question is answered in three ways. First, it has something to do with our distinctiveness from all creation. We're not compared to any other creature, but we are compared to our creator. Second, bearing the divine image involves a responsible exercise of dominion. And third, it involves our inherent relationality, which calls us to union amidst our differences, which reflects the love of the Holy Trinity. In closing, I want to return to that image of Dr. Brand in the hospital, gasping at the likeness of his old teacher on the face of his young Indian students. And I love that story because it communicates a kind of exchange of grace that can happen from one person to another. How the love of one man can be embodied by hundreds, 9,000 miles away, in order to impact thousands. And this makes me hopeful about the potency, brothers and sisters, of our call to the imitation of Christ. Embodied by millions for the purpose of impacting millions. In Christ, our true teacher, who Hebrews 1.3 refers to as the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature, Right? So as the new and sinless Adam, Jesus bears the unblemished imprint of our Heavenly Father. Colossians 1.15 puts it even more plainly. It says he is the image of the invisible God. <coughs> Jesus is not only fully God and fully human, he is fully God and fullest human. 
Our problem is not that we're only human. The problem is that we're not human enough. Jesus will restore us to the image of God that's been blemished. Right? That's the plan. And I wonder what would happen if we just gazed at the face of Jesus long enough. Long enough to take it in. Long enough to let it impact us. Long enough for us to begin to take on some of his attributes. What is Jesus like when children are around? What is Jesus like among the weak? What is Jesus like among powerful hypocrites? Would our face begin to shine with his likeness, his radiance, affecting the reversal of what we've lost in the garden? Friends, this is truth. This is discipleship. This is the whole of Christian life. To reverently behold the face of Jesus and somehow, by God's grace, to be transformed from one degree of glory to the next as the image of God is restored in us. And so we look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the one who bears the true image of God. And we cry out, restore us, make us radiant once again. Amen. Amen. Amen.